Welcome to Coffee House. Dune. So I was away. I was traveling in Florida. And by a large sequence of events, I ended up at this tiny little theater in the middle of a small town in Florida where they were showing Denis Villeneuve's brand new epic that's apparently the first of at least two. When you walked in, there was a taco bar and there's this little old lady... And she wasn't very, I mean, she's a little middle-aged lady, but uh, she assisted me with um, trying to get my tickets out of this machine. And then you had to walk behind this curtain to be able to get to the actual theater where the screens were, and that's where the concessions were. But there was a, a taco bar in the first instance that you had to navigate first to get to the, <laughs> the actual theater. So I got myself a popcorn. They had real butter in the machine, which I'm not ashamed to say that I left. I guess it was just midway through the previews. It wasn't in, during the actual movie. I left after I'd eaten like half of it and re-administered butter into that thing. And that was one of the great delights of my entire trip <laughs> was having so much butter on my popcorn. But the ticket itself was only $5 to see this brand new movie. I, I'm not sure how I got such a steal on that one, but this is in the midst of a, a pretty epic trip that I can't even begin to recount here. Anyway, that being epic, this certainly was. It's finally out, the next blockbuster by real filmmaker. Uh, the first one that I saw of Denis Villeneuve was uh, Sicario, I think. I saw it in theaters. And then sometime after that, I watched Prisoners, and then got to Arrival when that came out. I, I, had, I knew his name by the time that Arrival came out, and I went and saw that. And then Blade Runner, for sure I knew his name by then. And, and then I saw Enemy, and finally Dune. Enemy's probably the least heralded from a popular perspective of his his films, but he certainly, through the midst of watching all of his movies, he became my favorite living filmmaker. Sicario has this honest beauty that I can watch over and over again. Sometimes I just turn it on when I'm I'm going to sleep. Prisoners and Enemy are incredibly brilliant. They have these brilliant thematics built into it and these metaphors that are as deftly put together as pretty much anything that we've seen on film just in general. There are some weaknesses to Prisoners in particular, and Enemy kind of has a narrow band that it's, it's working with, but they both just have some brilliant aspects to them when it comes to the really complex filmmaking that I like the most. And then Blade Runner did the original justice while still being absolutely gorgeous. One of the most gorgeous movies ever put on film. And Dune might be the most beautiful movie <laughs> ever put on film. Might be the most beautiful movie I've seen, especially in the in this category of blockbusters. But, so does it stand up? Because it's still, notwithstanding its outer pulchritude... <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the most ironic words in history. Does that uh, come with an inner icky, or is it actually all around well put together? That's what we're going to talk about. So we can go into the plot now. The plot itself, it's based on the book by Frank Herbert, which is an, a notoriously difficult book to film. David Lynch did a version in 1984, and I did not see it. I know I turned it on one time to watch it, and either I fell asleep or I went off to do something else, because I did not see that movie, even though I love David Lynch. But Dune follows the fate of the Atreides family. Paul is the brilliant and troubled son of Leto Atreides and Lady Jessica, his concubine, Leto's concubine. And she has ties to mysterious forces that come into play. The family is thrust into the center of a major conflict as the Emperor, who we never meet, which I love, requests the family to replace the Harkonnen, Harkonnen, I think it's pronounced in the film, on the planet Arrakis. And on this planet, Arrakis, there's a valuable resource called spice, and that's where it's mined, and apparently it's used for interstellar travel or something like that. So it's, it's akin to oil in our world. The planet itself of Arrakis is covered in desert and crawling with Fremen. 
Now, I don't think the name is, is supposed to be especially complex here or leave you scratching your head as to what they are supposed to represent and what they are. Fremen, as in freemen, they are the native population who make homes in the caves and caverns around the planet. This planet's also home to giant sandworms. And Kevin Bacon is nowhere to be found. Now, Leto tries to raise his son... It's a big aspect of what happens in the story to take his place, but soon learns that the assignment that he's been given by the Emperor is not all that it seems to be. We have a number of supporting characters, one played by Josh Brolin. There's Jason Momoa. Josh Brolin is kind of the grizzled teacher of the protagonist in Paul Atreides. Jason Momoa is the soldier that the protagonist looks up to, and Javier Bardem is one of the Fremen. And then you've got Dave Batista on the other side. He plays one of our uh, villains, the Harkonnen. Okay, what are the pros of this movie? It is absolutely gorgeous. I loved every frame. I was completely entranced from beginning to end. And I loved the mechanics of the world. It wasn't just the, the plain beauty, but there were a number of aspects of the world that you got to see how they work together. So you would have the ships, like the dragonflies that you get to see, and they look like they could be functional. They could be a real way to do that. And things like the spice miners had a lot of structure to them and a lot of parts to them. And you could see them in close-up and different different aspects and how they work, how people get in and out of them, that sort of thing. You see one of the cities and you would have things like sun-blocking walls that is particular to this world. It has masterful macro storytelling. Now, this is something, obviously, that we talked about in other contexts. But the macro storytelling here, you have all the parties that have their own interests. So you see how these larger mechanisms within the world, you see how they butt up against each other. And then you have characters that, who are placed in the physical scene. So it's not just two characters talk in a room. You have a physical scene that has aspects to it that contribute to the storytelling or to the character, which is much appreciated. And attention is drawn to their surroundings. All important aspect of visual storytelling. I can't remember who actually said it. It was either the, the drunk guy or whoever... <laughs> I can't remember his particular name or is Ben Shapiro, who criticized the movie in this context for not being able to, not seeing the locals. So you don't see much of the actual cities. That was something about Game of Thrones, that you would get to know the actual cities when you were there. But in this, uh, you don't see much of the locals or how they function. And I think I agree with that assessment. I think that's a valid criticism. But you did understand who each of the larger factions was and what they were doing in this world, which was much, much appreciated. Another category, the acting. The acting was superb. You have the lesser characters who did enough. I mean, plenty even. Not just enough. They did plenty. So, like Jason Momoa. He's supposed to be just this likable soldier. He doesn't have a whole lot that he can do with that particular character. But he does a good job. He does well enough to be believable and enjoyable as a character. You have Josh Brolin, who had a little bit more to do within his character. He has to kind of show the history of the conflicts he's been involved in and his dogged commitment to the Atreides. And then you have Javier Bardem, who was also great in this, he was playing one of the Fremen, and he had a little bit more to do too. Then you have the big characters like Timothy Chalamet, who over the course of the movie, and it actually didn't take the whole movie, it happened relatively quickly, he earned his appreciation. I appreciated that he was the person playing this protagonist, Paul Atreides, relatively early on. And I think I had only seen him in one other thing maybe prior to this, but when I saw him in this, uh, I was skeptical as we started out, and then as he got into it, I was like, okay, this was this was the right casting. This makes a lot of sense, actually. And then Oscar Isaac, you know, he's always very good. He was fantastic in this. He really felt like a grounded character that made sense, who fit within this world, and accomplished a lot in what he with what he had to do. 
you have two real big standouts to me. Two of them were uh, Rebecca Ferguson. That's who played the concubine and Paul's mother. I think she was called Lady Jessica in the movie. And she has to keep going back and forth within these things. Like she has to be able to contend with, you know, the most powerful people in the galaxy or universe or whatever. At the same time, while she's still trying to viciously protect and push her son. So there, there were a number of things that she had to do within that character. And I think she did a really good job. I think she nailed it throughout. And and that's something that could have been dropped pretty easily. So I was I was pleasantly surprised that she was able to maintain that range and all the things that she had to do within that character throughout the whole movie. And then Stellan Skarsgård, I thought he was a big standout too. He played the kind of main villain, one of the Harkonnen. And there's a lot of physicality to this role. He really embodied it very well. And it's easy to fall into kind of a, a generic villain or antagonist mode of acting or even from the directing perspective to just kind of plug it in that this is the antagonist here you go but I think whoever had all the ideas about this character I think they did a great job and Stellan Skarsgård really put it together I've seen him in many different roles obviously by now and I think he was a real standout here and I thoroughly enjoyed what he did with this character so another thing that was a positive for me or pro was the pacing and <laughs> something I'll have to say is that pacing of this kind of a movie was an acquired taste now I liked Blade Runner 2049 and Denis Villeneuve kind of has that very quiet hand when it comes to taking his movies along he will take his time with things and some people might check out you know once we get to the second hour since it's two and a half hours i knew it was going to be two and a half hours some people might check out but for me it's like i've acquired the taste of denis villeneuve's pacing so i just appreciated it and enjoyed it pretty much beginning to end i, I think there was only one time where i kind of felt a little unnerved by the length of it i thought that was a plus for me and the plot itself was is complex and interesting enough. You have the character development of Paul's character on top of all the conflicts that are happening between the, the real factions and the real characters. So when you have those things sandwiched on top of each other, it provided sufficient complexity to make it engaging and interesting and fun and make the visuals and what happened to the characters actually mean something. Now, there are a lot of plot and story beats that you will likely anticipate, and I would be in dereliction of duty if I didn't call those out, but uh, as we, I think we recently talked about, there is something to the archetypes and the way the archetypes work that is important for storytelling, so you can't deviate too much from those without kind of losing your audience unless you're doing something really new or experimental. So when you're within a genre movie, and this one, it's a sci-fi, sci-fi fantasy kind of genre movie, this is how good, more digestible movies ought to be. The way that it structures, the things that are familiar, the things that are new, I think all of those things put together and mashed on top of each other, I think all of that really worked well in this, and that's at the same time that you're looking at some of the most amazing visuals that I have ever seen. So what are some of the cons? Like I said, some people are going to have a problem with the pacing. It does take its time in a number of areas, so it just kind of depends on what you're looking for. And there's plenty of things that happen, there's plenty of action, but you do have to kind of enjoy the moments where you get to take some time. Another con, or at least potential one, is the end was kind of in the middle. It made sense to me to kind of draw the action back in because you just you had this really big moment. And so it made sense to draw it back in and set up what was going to come next. But I could see people saying that, well, that kind of felt like a weird way to end it. it felt like a weird time to walk off the cliff and, and call it a movie. 
but you'll have to, you know, see it and take it as you will. And then Zendaya, this was the apparent love interest, or the female love interest. She doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie. She gets a little bit in the beginning, and then she's mostly kind of seen in visions and things like that, so I'm not, I'm not sure if she really had the opportunity to show what she can do, but she did seem a little shallow relative to, <laughs> to, uh, Timothy Chalamet and the rest of the cast. I don't know if she really has the acting range to pull off what she needs to. And just, I'm going to plug this in here. I'm not happy that Tom Holland is cast for Uncharted. Tom Holland played Spider-Man's and Dio was in Spider-Man, so that's the connection. I'm not super happy about that. I think Nathan Drake, the character, has way too much charisma. And Tom Holland has his own kind of charisma, but he's just got that freaking goofy-looking child face, and I just don't, I don't think he was properly cast for Uncharted. Maybe they just don't have many options. That's what they had to do. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of destiny talk. So that's kind of one of the through lines. And generally, you know, a lot of fantasy movies uh, and some sci-fi movies will use this motif, this destiny motif. And it can be tedious. Because it's either the thing's going to happen or it's not going to happen. They kind of telegraph things that are going to happen. And when they do, it's just like, all right, they did. And even if they don't, it's like, okay, well, they already talked about it. So I knew it was coming. So it can be tedious to have that destiny motif, but I think that actually part of the underlying thematics is to challenge destiny and challenge what's going to happen, and you'll have to see the movie to see kind of what I'm talking about, the hints at this by the time you get through it. But I think that's one of the thematic undercurrents of the whole series. So much like in The Matrix, in The Matrix that was one of the big things, is that, you know, free will versus destiny, and then they have to play with that throughout the series. Is like, oh, is the thing going to happen like it's supposed to happen? Is it happening? like it's supposed to happen? Is he going to fulfill it or is he going to do something else? I feel like it's a setup for a bigger thematic payoff. I think that's what the whole point is. And it didn't distract me or annoy me while I was watching the movie. So that's another one you're going to have to take it as you will when you watch the movie. So verdict-wise, just to kind of wrap it up, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was, I'm was i excited about the sequel. I'm excited to buy this thing when it comes out and watch it multiple times. I'm excited that there's a real-world film out there. <laughs> that came out in 2021. I mean, that's a recent development. It actually came out and it's doing well. I think the budget was under 200 million, which seems to be like the standard budget now for these things. It was 165 million and it already recouped the expenses, likely those expenses plus any marketing that they had to do. I think it likely already already paid for that. So that's great. But it really feels like there's a legitimate new world added to the pantheon of film worlds, you know? So you have things like Middle Earth, you have the Star Wars universe, you have the Avengers universe, and even though that one's uh, relatively skimpy. Uh, <laughs> but this one feels like a legitimate new world. I was, when I was uh, reading up on it, just to make sure I kind of understood what was going on, and wanted to figure out whether I wanted to read the book before I went back to the to watch the second movie, I was interested in the world. I was interested in how these things work. And when I was watching it, I remember I was kind of annoyed that they didn't spend more time just mining spice. <laughs> <laughs> just going through that whole process and seeing if they would, were going to be able to do it better and, and optimize the system and, and get production up. I, I was interested in that just by itself. So it's a legitimate new world, great world building, and I thoroughly enjoyed the movie just in general. All right, well, that is Coffee House, and I would definitely recommend seeing that movie. Hopefully that's a good sign of more things to come. But you could please check out some of the other episodes if you would like to read all sorts of books, good books, bad books, and talk about big ideas. 
And, oh, quick airport story. So I was traveling, like I said. I had brought my microphone because I was planning on recording something and getting it up while I was traveling over, like, the week in Florida. And my microphone was just heavy enough to put my checked bag over the limit. So I had to open it up in front of everybody. Everybody's pointing and laughing. And I had to open it up. I took out the microphone. I thought maybe that is enough weight. It turned out to be a microphone and a pair of pants or what I had to take out. And so I had to stuff the microphone. I coiled the wire around the microphone and stuffed it in my carry-on, which made it very heavy and awkward. And then when I was going through security, they I saw I had gotten through, and I was looking over, and the guy pulled aside my bag, and he said that he had to do an extra check, and he was looking at me suspiciously opened it up and then he's kind of moving things around a bit and he pulls the microphone out and then he goes oh <laughs> and he turns to one of the other people and he holds it up he says yeah that's what we saw so apparently because it looked like it was coiled wiring <laughs> it made it look like a bomb and so i got i got pulled aside for that so after accidentally almost bombing an airport, I think I was put off of, of recording things, consciously or subconsciously, and therefore I did not record anything while I was gone. But we are nearly done with Gad Saad, and we'll have that episode up uh, you know, as soon as possible. We're not going to have a discussion on Dune, a d- just a specifically discussion episode that does like spoilers or anything like that. I don't think it's necessarily warranted. It might be after the second one comes out and we get through the whole thing, but uh, I don't think it's necessarily warranted to go through that, even though I'd love to read maybe after I watch it again. Again, we'll do a recap. But anyway, so thank you very much for listening. I will definitely uh, see you on the next one. Hope all is well. Bye.